This afternoon we're going to resume living the redeemed life. Living the redeemed life. And the redeemed life is one that we walk by faith in God's word and in Jesus Christ, the object of our faith, depending on him, looking unto him, the author and the finisher of our faith, and that he has accomplished the works that he, as he said he has done according to the word of God, according to God's word. It says in the 21st verse of Isaiah, the 44th chapter, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee, thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord had done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth, break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and everything therein, for the Lord had redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spread it abroad by myself. Uh, that's Isaiah, the 44th chapter, the 22nd verse to the 24th verse. And I think where I ended up last time was saying that redemption is a process. Redemption as a process. Luke, the 21st chapter, and the 28th verse. This ain't, you know, I hate pulling verses out of context, but it's in the Olivet Prophecy that Jesus was talking to his people. And I won't read that whole uh, saying unto us. But at the 28th verse, he says, uh, And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up, lift up your head, for your redemption draweth nigh. So he was giving us signs and things that would happen in the end time that would be coming up to the end time but that process of redemption that had started when we were born again when we came unto the knowledge of God that he had redeemed us he had chosen us from the foundation of the world but there was a process that we had to go through a redemption process that we have to do and it's the process, it's salvation, justification, all of those things are included into that into that uh, process. The living says, so when all these things begin to happen, stand straight and look up, for your salvation is near. The Amps for Fly Version says, now when these things begin to occur, stand tall and lift up your heads in joy, because suffering ends as your redemption is drawing near. So as we see the chaos in the world and the things that are going on in this present age that's going on, we know that the world, the Gentile times of the Gentiles is at an end. And that the times of the kingdom is about to be ushered in. But we see it had started with that stone that was smote out without hands in the book of Daniel where that kingdom has been growing. And that the holy people have been through a whole lot during that time. But it, it was all in all a process that God had his chosen people going through. 
this part of Jesus' Olivet prophecy is where he predicts about these time, things that could be going on and that our complete redemption, the completion of that process was at hand. So that's why I'd be so joyous when I look in the news and when I see the things that are going on around me and happening. I see God's word being fulfilled each and every day. Knowing that the conclusion is clear by all means that through the revelation of Jesus Christ, He given us wisdom and understanding by His word and through His word. And as we pray unto Him, that sanctification is a process. All of these things are processes. Conversion is a process. Growing and overcoming are processes. You don't overcome or grow overnight. It's a process of growing and overcoming. That we hadn't completed, and Paul said he hadn't completed. He says, I hadn't reached the mark yet, but he keeps pressing on for the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus. We go and proceed on to perfection, and now we see that redemption also is a process. The Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance against the redemption that come at night, but we know the redemption of our bodies is, is not to at the end time when the corruptible will put on incorruptible. The mortal will put on immortality. Even though different doctrines that preach different things, some people preach that, you know, you're already immortal. And it's no, not. After the new birth, you're redeemed. You have eternal life, but it's a process. It's a process. We do not become completely free of our captivity to Satan in, in, in this world in one giant leap. All throughout the book of Revelation it says to he that overcometh, to he that overcometh. We keep growing in the faith, growing through trial and tribulation in study, suffering, I mean. Liberty is produced incrementally, one step at a time. We just can't pull off the vestiges of this old world and bondage that we're in. A lot of people come into Christianity and they want to be at the point where some people that's been in Christianity walking with the Lord 30 or 40 years and that's not possible. It's not by fiat. We just don't metamorphosize and overcome this by overnight. That's why he didn't. He told a thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. But he didn't have much growing that he was going to do. You see, because we have to grow in the grace and knowledge and understanding of our Lord. Job had been walking with God a long time and called Job a perfect and upright man. That's because God sees us how we are as a completed project. He sees us in Christ. When he sees us in Christ, he sees his son Christ. He sees what's complete. God has to call things as they are. But in him, it's a done deal. It's complete. We're complete in Christ Jesus. Although the process is still ongoing, God sees the finished product. We can't stand before God. We have to be clothed in Christ to stand before God. We would burn trying to stand before God. We are indeed the first fruits of God's great purpose, but we are most assured that not a finished product yet. You keep hearing that first fruits, first fruits. The church has a specific job, and there have been called for a specific calling. There are many called, but only a few chosen. 
those are specific vocations that he's calling those in the church to in their first fruits of the harvest. We are under construction, being transformed and brought to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 4 and 13. So in this process, in this process, a time, uh, our time, uh, we look at Romans 7.23. I told you yesterday, some of this stuff I was still removing and trying to see how it was presented because I have this redemption to be preached at six or seven different parts and some parts I have to kind of shift around or whatever. I would time the book of Romans the seventh chapter the 23rd through the 24th verse says but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the body of this death, says, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I hope she's calling don't throw this off. That's Sister Harris calling her. But with, from glory just as, to, as by the Spirit. Transformation as this process of redemption, we should be able to understand this fully from our own experiences since being converted. We know that we are not completely free from Satan in this world. There's a time frame. There's a time frame. And Paul, if, and I heard Jimmy Swaggart preaching on this at one time in it greatly confused, kind of confused me at the time. Because, like I said, there's a lot of different preaching out there, and I think, I, you know, I know now that it, I think it was error I was listening at. There's a lot of error in some teaching. That wasn't what he was saying it was. That was Paul experiencing that. He was talking that because he was actually going through that that this warfare was continuing on in, in him at that time. It's continuing on with us and we'll be struggling with that other man, this law of sin that's in our members. This thing, it gets more pronounced the higher up you go and that's what made me think, well, I don't know just how far is he in the Lord if he can't see that the pronouncer, this how pronounced this is, and I said, well, no wonder he fell from grace a couple of times because he had gotten into a state not realizing what a wretched person he is. See, if Paul realized it, Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? If that's the apostle Paul saying that, which wasn't a pre-conversion thought. 
those those thoughts was wasn't in their thinking pre-conversion or pre-Jesus Christ, pre the time of their conversion after the day of Pentecost. See, it was Nicodemus that Jesus had told you the rule of the Jews and you know not this, that you must need be born again. There's a conversion that takes place. But this conversion is a process. It doesn't happen. There's a no line of demarcation that now you, this day you're not a Christian, this day you're a Christian, and now you've been converted. No, it's not a full conversion. You may be converted and your sins will be blotted out, but it's a process of walking down here having Christ blot those sins out as you sanctified by His Word, as you washed by the washing of regeneration in His Word, you have to overcome, and there's a lot of them that are not overcoming. And so I understood what happened with him at this time and why it happened after I read that, after I heard a lot of other preachers preaching on it and understood that there are a lot of people preaching, but they don't quite understand. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 and 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Now this verse here indicates that everything concerning salvation is undergoing a process of transformation. If you have noticed, Paul started to realize as he went on in his apostleship just how chief of sinners he was and how full that he had to count everything that he had known as laws. That doctrine as a Pharisees and all that, he counted all laws. He wanted to gain Christ, the understanding, the wisdom and knowledge. Everything that he was seeking was in Christ. What all we seek is in Christ. Human nature in this world have their hands upon us, and we have to fight them off every day. Consistently, we have to die daily, and it's a battle out there in that world. It's it's a spiritual battle and sometimes you get kind of battle worn. You can see signs of fatigue setting in. That's why we come unto him and rest. That's why he says he that is heavy laden come unto him. He's our rest. He told his disciples come apart and rest a while. Anytime you overdo something you have a tendency to wear down and wear out. That That's what that day of Sabbath was. That six days you shall labor and rest on the Sabbath. It was illustrating something. The, the Sabbath illustrates something to us. If we don't take... Now, Christ is our rest. We rest in Christ Jesus. He's our Sabbath. He's our day of rest. He's our time of rest. Now, we know that if we do not, we will conform to them and their ways. If we don't consistently fight, and the fight could be in, it's going to be in your home, it's going to be on your job, it's going to be everywhere. You have to learn to win those battles and only by the word of God can you realize when you're winning the battles uh, spiritually. He gives you a spiritual piece of joy to allow you to see that you've overcome those things. Some things just drop off. You're not you're not longer any time fighting that same battle, but you're aware that Satan is just as he told Jesus that he was going to come at a more convenient time. 
sometimes these things go away, but they do come back again. They have a way of sneaking back subtly upon you. Satan came back to Jesus at the cross, but where his accident was, was putting him to death, and Jesus laid down his life. He allowed wicked men, men to destroy him. He was an innocent sacrifice. Gradually, as we learn and overcome, the veil is removed, but a time is coming when we will have fullness of everything promised. So, we can start to see a little bit clearer as Paul says we see dimly. Is that what I said he said? That we see dimly now. For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. So it's a time when full clarity comes. It's like he said he spoke to Moses face to face. It's going to be a time till we go clear, see things clear as day. And you'll now as Job, as he took Job through the suffering and the, the deep tribulation and afflictions he went through, Job said, I see more clearly now. I see God and I understand better. God is slowly wiping away our vision of this world and the things of this world. Unlike the Laodiceans, he told them that the world had them blinded with material goods and they thought they had need of nothing, but they were poor, wretched, naked, and blind. The Spirit clears us and gives us eyesight. That faith that we walk by is not by sight, it's by faith. We have to learn that walk. Paul relates that experience, I told you, in, in Romans when he see, say he see another law working in his members, warring against the law of his mind, trying to bring him into the captivity of the law of sin and death. Now he writes that the law of sin brought him into captivity. A person in captivity is not free, is he? In verse 24, he continues on, Who shall deliver me, that is, redeem me completely from the body of this death? So God, through Christ Jesus, comes in and he redeems us. He buys us back from under the curse, under the law of sin and death. But we don't achieve that right away. We have to grow in grace, grow in faith ever-increasing faith. So that redemption is a process. We're redeemed from lawlessness, but it says, yield not your member unto lawlessness and unto sin and unto unrighteousness, for you are serving of whom you yield. But believe me, that iniquity that's in you, that sin that's in you is going to put up a, a consistent battle. It's like the man was telling me when I got ready to lose weight, he said, now be careful with that diet. It's a good diet or whatever. But you have to be vigilant because that weight gain will come upon you like come back upon you like a wolf. He's going to come back upon you like a wolf. A person in need of deliverance is not free. Even as long as a long time apostle, Paul was not truly free as God fully intended him to be. So that that's what he was struggling for the liberty that's in Christ Jesus. He was he had a measure of it. But just like Abraham didn't receive the promises and everything, we must strive to enter in. We're going to have to keep striving. God's not going to have it to a point that we're going to lay down and say, now we have it made. Beware of that 
man with the rabbit tendency to hurry up and quickly get ahead and then lie down on his laurels and not move. That's what he said about Moab, that Moab had been relaxed on its leaves. It hadn't been turned. It's like wine that was on its leaves. It hadn't been stirred up. It hadn't been shaken. And it got overripe. It got robust. It had a strong pungent, you know, if you let something sit too long without shaking it up. We see this picture in the children of Israel in the days of the wilderness. They were physically free. That is, that they had fled beyond the boundaries of Egypt, but they were still not free from Egypt's influence. That's what the world is. Egypt is a type of the world. It's a type of sin. So, you was able to geographically get them out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in them. Egypt still influenced their decisions. They remembered the cucumbers and the leeks and the different things. They remembered the flesh pies, but they wasn't thinking clearly because you were in bondage in Egypt. You were slaves in Egypt. See, we were slaves to the world and a lot of people in situations and like I say, a spouse or children or parents or employee, employees or something has them bound but it's kind of like the elephant that you keep him chained and his foot tied up and chained up so long to after a while you can take the chains off and he won't go far because he's accustomed to being chained and he can only go so far. Well Christ has loosed us but in our mind, we have to. He has to open up our mind to enjoy the liberty that's in Christ Jesus. We have to do like Peter, step out on the water. We have to get out the boat, but we're afraid to get out the boat. That's where it requires faith to walk by faith and not by sight. See, we used to security and in ourselves. We don't do anything till we secure it. And you think that's faith? That's not faith. That's self-assurance. A lot of them have self-righteousness. It's not the righteousness of God. That's what Israel didn't have, the righteousness of God. They went about seeking their own righteousness. And what do you say about our righteousness? Is that filthy rags. This is why God urges us to flee Babylon. Jeremiah 51 and 6. Revelations 18 and 4 to come out of Babylon. Now we can't physically escape from the borders because Babylon's influence is worldwide. As I told you, Babylon is a system. It's the world system. It's Babylon. But he says come out of the world. But we escape it spiritually by not permitting it to influence our conduct and our attitudes. We need a change of conduct and attitudes. That's what the scriptures do. The transforming in the renewing of our mind. You have a different attitude, a different disposition toward things. Now all this means that we will not truly be redeemed until we fully come into our inheritance. Then we will be completely released from all the effects of sin and it will be plain to all that we are indeed God's pure treasure. All the sickness would disappear. Now they didn't heed it while they were in the wilderness God didn't allow, their feet didn't swell, their clothes didn't wear out or whatever. But they still griped and complaining. They didn't, they 
physically didn't enjoy it. And they physically, God fulfilled all his promises to them in the physical about the inheritance. But their murmuring and complaining caused them not to be able to fully enjoy it. Not to take that and enjoy that which God gave. They, they got into the land and instead of enjoying God as their king, they wanted a king like the rest of the nation is dead. You see, the world influences us and keeps under the world's influence. You were shaping in iniquity. And in sin, our mothers conceived us. So we are in the bondage of the will, as Barton Luther said in the book, Bondage of the Will. We are born bound in this world. We have to be relooped. We have to be loose. We have to be redeemed, bought back, because our father... Adam sold us into slavery. He sold the whole human race into bondage. And that's what Jesus do. He comes and buys us back. He purchases us. There's a purchase price. It's his blood. We were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now we have to live as we are redeemed people. That's why I say Living the life of the redeemed, and that has that the only way that can be lived is through faith. But we need to start living the life of the redeemed. That's why preaching and teaching is here because all of us are living way below the poverty line here. We have money and inheritance lying up there. We have a father that's so rich, so wealthy. That all we have to do is ask him. Now, I don't think he put any limit on it. He says, anything, anything that you ask my father in my name, that he'll do for you. Anything. He didn't say some of the things. He said anything. But we, we have to learn how to ask. We have to learn how to live so we could have that which we ask of him. Now, in learning how to ask, one thing is not asking amiss. A lot of people say, if that's true, I want a million dollars. What would you do with a million dollars? You would be in more trouble with that attitude than you was. No wonder he keeps you in poverty to keep you humble. Some people get their hands on less money than that, but they think they're wealthy and they start treating people differently. It destroys them. They say prosperity will destroy a fool. Solomon, the wealthiest man it was, and he come to write the book, Ecclesiastes is all vanity and vexation of spirits. We see wealth doesn't happen. Marriages, they have movie stars and different people and businessmen having two and three million dollar weddings, a hundred $10 million weddings and things. Uh, this lady got this Bezos wife, I forgot her name, I told you the other day. She got married. She's the wealthiest woman in the world and she was divorced a year later. Melinda Gates got divorced from Bill Gates one, at one time one of the richest men in the world. Money doesn't cause success and happiness. Wealth doesn't do that. It's insight and success is in God. Ephesians 4, 11-15. Do we know how to live a redeemed life? That's why a lot of wealthy people become philanthropists 
And this lady that I was telling you about, Bill Gates, I mean, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, she's been giving away over two or three, I mean, five or six billion dollars. She said she wanted to give away half of her fortune. Warren Buffett gives away, and he, he dedicated a good bit of his money to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or whatever. But sometimes it takes to get wealthy to learn that you only prosper by giving it away. That's what a success and happiness is in giving it away and not storing it up. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, 11 through the 15th verse, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith. Some instruct and guide us to build up the body of Christ until we reach oneness in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, that is, growing spiritually, to become a mature believer, reaching to the measure of the fullness of Christ, that is, manifesting his spiritual completeness and exercising our spiritual gifts in unity, so that we are no longer children, that is, spiritually immature tossed back and forth like ships on a stormy sea and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning and trickery of unscrupulous men, by the deceitful scheming of people ready to do anything for personal profit, but speaking the truth in love in all things, both in speech and in our lives expressing the truth. Let us grow up in all things into him, following his example, who is the head, that is Christ. So there's a way that we have to live to be living a life of redemption. In other words, a redeemed life. We have to redeem the time because the days are evil. We can't waste our time. The slothful wastes their time. But we need to do every thing to study, pray, do good works, to be with the family, to do different things, to carry out a well-balanced life. And to do that, you need to be led by the Spirit of God. You need for God to be in you and working through you and being led by the Spirit of God. That's why I say the redemption comes along with the Spirit. He's given the Spirit. That's how He redeems you out of the world that the spirits will lead you and guide you in truth because it's the adoption of sons. You're no longer in the world. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer under its bondage. And if you would be obedient to the spirit and not grieve the spirit, you would walk in the light as he's in the light. No more walking in darkness as we used to. You'll lay aside all those things, all the works of darkness. Jesus Christ is the standard and example, the pinnacle of, of all things a human should be. Not, o- not only was he legally sinless, he was also humble, meek, merciful, sacrificial, kind, encouraging, positive, and patient. So we must be all those that's attitude and conduct. All of those require the Spirit because a lot of those 
come through the fruit of the Spirit. It comes, it has to be sanctified. In other words, God's Word washes or cleanses the filth away. The filth is the works of the flesh. Those things has to be washed away. We could see it in the world, in this nation, in our state, in our city, and some of us in our homes. When considering what he was in total personality for the purpose of comparing ourselves to him, we need to recall that in Romans it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, re- we need to keep that in mind. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us measure up. So we can't find a man that we should use as a pattern or example. That's not our focus. Our focus has to be on Jesus Christ. Don't get your focus off him. Now, I was telling you about that word homotea the other day in paratoma, and it means to fall or to fall short of the trespass of falling short of an idea and sins. All of us in, are in those areas, not him, though. Together, homotea and paratoma directly tie what we might think of as minor, unimportant, and secondary, secondary issues of conduct and attitudes into the Ten Commandments. That's where, you know, that's the basics of it. And there's a, there's a precept there. And that's the problem is, we don't see that we're wrestling against principalities and powers that try to blind us to the precepts and statues of God. See, he says, these are my statutes, these are my precepts, you should walk into them, in them. But when a lot of preachers and things talking about that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinance against us, he's talking about ceremonial or ordinances of the law, but not the law. And now we're not trying to keep us from the law. He has freed us from the law, but he had freed us unto himself. That's, that liberty that's in Christ Jesus, we we shouldn't sin though. That's why it says continue in sin. Then the apostles John in the in the first John, he says, We have the petition we ask of him. That which you pray for and that which you ask, because that's the only way we can get it from God is to ask the Father in Jesus' name. And John says, We have those things. Anything we ask him for, we have them. Why? Because we keep his commandments. That's why he says when we pray, pray our Father. He's gonna give us day by day his daily our daily bread. His kingdom is gonna come. He's gonna forgive us our trespasses and our debts as we forgive others. That develops conduct in a state of mind, an attitude. Mm. Romans five and six says for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now in Romans 5 and 6, the apostle declares that Christ died for the ungodly. But if we believe that he did die for us, if we believe that he hung up on the cross, we believe in Jesus Christ, 
that He died, that we rise up to newness in life, He gives us the power of the ability to become the sons of God. That's the power. Is in our weakness is in His strength that gives it to us to live in this body through us in Him because it's no longer our body. Right? If it's not our body, that means we can't use it the way we want to use it. We can't allow sin to reign in us. We can't yield our members unto unrighteousness. We can't continue in sin. That's why repentance is preached in His name. It requires a turning back to Him. Now, He justified us. In other words, the justification came and He wiped the slate clean. He wiped the slate clean so now if there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus, we forget about that which behind us because he said he had blotted it out. Didn't we read that in Isaiah 44 and uh, 23, 22 when he said that he had blotted out all of our transgressions? 2044 and 22. He says... I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgression and as a cloud thy sins return unto me. So if he's justified, he puts us in right standing with God, in the right state. So there's no condemnation to those of us in Christ Jesus. If we are the sons of God, we start at that point and walk. We don't let nobody level accusations against us that would cause us to doubt what God's doing in our life. He had redeemed us. He had bought us back. Now are we the sons of God. Now who's going to accuse us? If Christ had forgiven us, who can accuse us? Nothing could separate us from his love. So he had given us the ability, that is, the power to become the sons of God. Because while we were dead in our sins and transgression. He died for the ungodly. We were that ungodly that he died for. We were yet in sin. So it wasn't nothing we did. He chose to do that. He says, fear not, Jacob, I've redeemed. Fear not, you are my servants, I've redeemed you. In other words, I bought you back. Now you, this is the adoption of sons. I have adopted you into my family. You are sons of God. Walk like it. Chin up. Now that law, the schoolmaster, it taught us until Christ came. We were under that schoolmaster. Paul was under that schoolmaster. That's why he was such a great apostle because he knew what the law had said. The law was perfect and upright, but we couldn't keep the law. The law didn't deliver us. The law doesn't promise transgression. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, Christ through his spirit, that's who he's doing it. Now, the Greek word for ungodly is asabis, meaning those without any reverence toward God. Nobody loved God. God had caused us to love him. He brought us to love him. That's why I hate to hear people use the word love so loosely or whatever, because they don't understand or actually know what love is. When they say God is love, love is God, they don't understand actually what the love of God is. Essentially, man is unwilling or unable to recognize God's sovereignty and holiness 
which causes him to fall short of being what God intends him to be. So since we can't recognize it, God has to open up our mind. He has to wake us to consciousness. In other words, He quickens us. He makes us alive. The fear and reverence of God is the beginning of knowledge and understanding. So that's what God brings us. That, that's the process. That's where we're being, that's the regenerating process. When that regeneration starts, He's creating a new man created in Christ Jesus, after Christ Jesus. The countermeasure for man's sinfulness is the perfect, sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, culminating in an opportunity for justification. Now, we should walk as he walked, right? If, If he was our example. So, we have to live a sacrificial life, right? We should present our bodies the book of Romans 12 chapter as a living sacrifice unto God present our body by the transforming and renewing of our minds we should die to self the sacrificial life and we can't forget the death of Jesus Christ so if he lived the sacrificial life and I'm telling you Living the redeemed life cause is we have to walk sacrificially. In other words, we have to die to self. We have to humble ourselves. We have to learn to humble ourselves. We learn not to be self-centered, self-ambitious, self-will. All of these things with the word self in it is detrimental. Christ didn't walk a self-serving life. He said he came to minister unto, not to be ministered unto. So we we are to live as he lives. See, that's where a lot of Christians misses it. They want to walk a victorious life, but they miss it that Christ learned obedience by the things he suffered, and it was in his everyday life in which he suffered those things. He was not a man. He didn't try to make himself of a reputation. He gave God the glory. So we have to live. It's important that we see Christ living in his everyday life. That's the life we need to live. Now the burial, the identifying with the body of Christ. Remember I told you the burial, the death, and we're to die daily. We're to keep putting that old man to death, that other nature within us. The resurrection, the rise up and the walk in the newness of life. We have to walk a victorious life. Now, that's that, that's what I say. That's a narrow path to walk. That's not a broad road. Now, if you get on the broad road, you could be lost. Yes. That's a pretty narrow road to thread on. But it's a narrow road that leads that way. He told us it was a narrow way. That narrow way is the way we have to go. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. All power was given unto Him. That power, we have the ability to have that power. Peter didn't say it was of Him. He says it wasn't of Him, but in the name of Jesus Christ, walk up, rise up and walk. All of them did these things in the name of Jesus I think he told us, he says, anything you ask, ask in my name. 
It has to be in the name. It has to be for the kingdom's sake. Not to consume it on your own lust. You asking a miss if you asking for yourself because you wanted to show somebody else who you are, how high and mighty you are, and how religious you are. It'll never happen. Romans 4 and 25 is where that justification culminates. The objective of justification is not merely to render a guilt-free verdict for the repentant sinner, nor does it provide a special certificate of eternal life to its recipient. That's not what justification does. Instead, it is a spiritual act, part of a spiritual process with spiritual effects that open the way to salvation and eternal life. Let me repeat that. The objective of justification is not merely to render a guilt-free verdict. In other words, you declared justified. But that's not the objective. The and, and nor does it provide a special certificate to say, okay, he has eternal life because he's justified. Here's a certificate. You have eternal life. No, it's not done that way. It's not one and done. Instead, it is a spiritual act. Justification is a it's an act. It's something that Christ does. It's part of this spiritual process. You remember I told you the whole thing, sanctification, everything that we talked about at the beginning of that process, sanctification, conversion, growing and overcoming our processes. Well, that spiritual act that starts that regeneration is part of a spiritual process which affects the and, and opens up the way to salvation in eternal life. There's a regeneration that's occurring. Regenerating each and every day. Repenting each day. Repentance is consistent. You keep turning and turning to God. Turning away from self because... If you're dying daily, you're learning in God that there are a lot of things that you have to lay down. That's why he, the writer of Hebrews say, the second, sixth chapter, laying aside the doctrines of baptism, of laying on of hands, let us go on to perfection in Christ Jesus. We need to be perfect and upright, so there's a lot we have to learn out here that these scriptures that give us life but we need to overcome. We can't be where our parents and grandparents was. We got to be further down the road than them. The last shall be first, he said. And the first shall be last. In the book of he- Hebrews, I talked about a, a sacrifice. Let's talk about Christ's redeeming sacrifice. Because he said he was the one who had redeemed us. He redeemed us. So he's the redeemer and we are the redeemed. Hebrews 2.14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. Let me read that and then go out and break it down after reading it. Uh, 
Amplified. I should have read it in the living first. Therefore, he says, since these, that is, his children, share in flesh and blood the physical nature of mankind, he himself, in a similar manner, also shared in the same, that is, a physical nature, but his was one without sin. So that through experiencing death, he might make powerless, ineffective, or impotent him who had the power of death. We no longer fear death because he experienced death for us. That's the last enemy that shall be overcome, that shall be put down is death. So we see death hadn't been overcome because we've been dying all of this time. But as believers, we know it's only sleep, so we we don't fear death. He's given us victory over the grave. And that he might free all those who through the haunting fear of death were held in slavery through their lives. So we're not afraid of losing our life because we know if we lose our life, we save our lives. Some religions make no mention of Satan as a reality. I think a lot of them forgot about Satan. They don't even mention Satan. But Satan is the adversary. He's the one that's against you. There is a malevolent spirit out there. That's intent in causing harm. Jesus says you're of your father the devil. There is those out there. Others include him as a reality and enemies, yet they make little or no accounting of him actively working to destroy mankind in God's purpose. Don't be naive. There is Satan, and as Satan was cast from heaven, he became the devil. That's a human personification of evil, the devil. Yeah. Human. He's come down to man. He says, beware, the devil has come down to you. Jesus makes no bones about Satan actively working to destroy men. In the book of John 8, chapter 44, in accusing the Jews of unbelief, he puts Satan's nature in plain words. He says, ye of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Notice, that's what you want to do. It's in some people to do, and they are driven by wicked ways, wickedness. Those are the ones that love darkness because their deeds are dark. They're just wicked. There are the wicked in the earth. Don't, don't fool yourself. There are two seeds within the earth. The sons of man and the, the sons of God and the daughters of men... And these people are wicked people. They are the father of the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. So Satan is clearly responsible for drawing an Adam and Eve into the first of mankind's sins. And that opened the floodgate of all human race. He sold the human race over to sin. We had to be bought back by the second man, Jesus. All physical and mental sickness, countless emotional agonies, and billions of death that mankind has experienced. And Jesus came and he said, by my stripes were you healed. Now to, your faith can, can get that, but it's all in Christ. Remember he told the woman, your faith has made you whole? 
And that's why I say that salvation process is a walk. You, to, to develop that faith to overcome sickness, to overcome poverty, because it says, "I wish that you prosper in soul and and, and health, and in, you know." In, he wants you wealthy. He wants the best for you, but some of us, it's not best for us to be wealthy. It's not best for us to prosper, because, like I say, prosperity a, a, a destroyer of food. There are some people with riches. They're in worse shape than before they got the riches now. God makes it clear that the wages, the ultimate penalty that is earned by sin is death. You you don't want to get paid those wages. You want a reward to receive a reward from God and not lose rewards. The sobering truth of this matter is that it takes only one sin for God to impose the death penalty. Uh, what it was, James say, whoever uh, violate one of the law, the, the keep the whole law, you're obligated. And if you don't keep the whole law, then that enters in. Any religion that is without Christ leaves the door open to thoughts that salvation can be earned by means of good works. And that's why I say the only religion that don't do that is Christianity, is that of Jesus Christ, because you're going to be rewarded according to your works, but works doesn't save you. So you'll be judged by those things, but it's the white throne judgment. It's not a judgment of your salvation is what rewards you receive. Because in through life, you will be tried and tested and you may lose those rewards, but you will save your life. You could be like Lot. Lot went out full, but he only... He scarcely made it. You remember he lost everything he had in Sodom and Gomorrah. The prodigal son, the wasteful son. He lost his inheritance. But he was welcomed back as a son. He didn't lose his sonship. He was restored to sonship. But that sonship came with rewards for working now. All that the father had blown into the eldest son. Now he didn't lose those. I don't know what you know. It you can't take a parable, uh, yeah, parable out too far or whatever. And the Bible doesn't tell us that, but we know the Father said all that he had did belong to the elder son. The younger son had lost his inheritance. So where would the Father get anything else to give him? It all belonged to the older son because he received that double portion. The father had use of it the whole time he was alive. But he probably did that all the son. The idea is that the devil, the, the idea is that evil, the idea is that the evil an individual has done in the past can be compensated for by doing good deeds. That's a Catholic and some other religions talking about penance and all of these things. This is, very, this is the very charge the apostle lays against the Jews in Romans 10, 1 through 4. This is what Paul tells them. Brethren, my harsh desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. 
For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So righteousness ends where Christ is right here. That's the end of the law. Because we receive the righteousness of Christ Jesus. That's imputed unto us. His righteousness. So that's the end of that. But what happens is, a lot of people tell you about works and penance and all these. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't do enough good deeds because it requires a death. And Christ was the only one able to pay the death penalty. And he ascended to the throne of God and presented his blood to Christ, to the throne. And it was accepted of God. And he descended. He had all power in heaven and earth. So he had redeemed us by his blood. So you can't be redeemed by works. So as I was telling you, a lot of the people that go into philanthropy and all of these other things, I think her name is Mackenzie, the lady that I was trying to think about. Jeff Bezos' ex-wife is Mackenzie. Her last name is Mackenzie. I don't think she changed it when she got married after the divorce to Bezos, the second man she married divorce. I don't think she changed it. But anyhow, where I was here, I, I, when I be talking and then something comes to me, I bring it up or whatever. But I was leaving that because I can't finish all I have in the next three to five minutes. But in order for one to be justified before God and accepted by him requires a righteousness that no man who ever sinned even one time can achieve. We have to have Christ's righteousness because our own righteousness all have sinned so no one can do that. No amount of good works or nothing can achieve that. Uh, there's Paul says in Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So I won't go too far in from this but we'll pick it up at some other time because I have a lot of redemption to talk about, but we fit about to go in salvation here to talk about salvation denotes deliverance, deliverance of preservation from harm or evil, but that's part of what we were redeemed from was from evil and from the law. Heavenly